0: You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin Podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. That is so true that wise men do still seek Him, But it is also true that it's not the wisdom of men that bring us to Christ, but rather it's the wisdom of God at work in our salvation. And if ever that were clear, it certainly is the case when you look at these wise men that we read about in Matthew chapter 2. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn there with me this morning. Matthew chapter 2. And today we're going to continue looking at the fascinating story I believe it to be an extraordinary story of these wise men, men that we have heard about, men that we have read about in Scripture. We have seen them pictured in the Nativity. They are these mysterious characters that we find surrounding the uh, the manger scene, there celebrating with others the birth of Christ. But how did they get there? What about their story, their journey? It's fascinating. When you stop to consider it. And Matthew records it for us here in the second chapter of his gospel. Would you stand with me in honor of our Lord in the reading of his word to us today? He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered together the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Lord, I pray again today you would open our eyes and help us to understand more of this great mystery surrounding these wise men, how they, how they found their way to Bethlehem, how you led them and guided them to the place where they would find the Christ, and their response to the Christ once they saw him. Lord, may we learn from this today. May you teach us today, and may we today, together, not just in this gathering, but in our life, offer up to Christ worship that is worthy of his great name. For we ask it in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So last week when we looked at these wise men, we talked about their journey to Bethlehem. And I shared with you that these men from the east who traveled there to Bethlehem, their story is nothing short of miraculous. And all through it, you can see the grace of God. You see, these men were probably Parthians who had come from the region somewhere around ancient Babylon. They were men educated in a variety of subjects. They studied a wide range of subjects, and thus they were given the name wise men. But they served as advisors to the king because the king would wish to draw from the wisdom acquired by these men and use it to his advantage as he ruled over the people. And so wise men are are often served as advisors to the kings, but of all the fields of study that they specialized in, there was one that stood out above all the rest, and it was the field of astrology. These men were stargazers, they were men who studied the zodiac. They looked up into the stars because they believed that in the stars you could tell much about life, that, that you could find the meaning of life in the stars. You could even tell the future and things that were going to happen in the future by looking into the stars. And so these were nothing more than pagan astrologers who lived some 600 miles probably away from Judea, and yet somehow they found their way to Bethlehem where they would be among the very few who would welcome and celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ when it took place. How did they get there? I believe that you can trace their story back centuries before to a man by the name of Daniel who once lived in Babylon. Daniel was a Jew who had been exiled to Babylon along with his people. He was a young boy when he went into exile. And so he just just sort of grew up there in Babylon. And he lived the biggest part of his life there in captivity with the rest of the Jews. And while Daniel was there, Daniel was a man who was devoted to the Lord his God. Even though the Babylonians tried everything they, do, they could do to convert Daniel and to get him to fit into the Babylonian culture and to basically just become Babylonian himself, Daniel refused. Daniel was devoted to the Lord his God and he would not bow the knee to any other. And God blessed that. Even in the midst of that pagan culture and those pagan surroundings, God blessed Daniel. And in fact, through a series of events, God elevated Daniel in that land to a place where he became a very powerful and a very influential individual. In fact, the Bible tells us that Daniel was given the responsibility in Babylon by the king to serve as the chief administrator over the wise men. And so you have to believe that Daniel sees that opportunity to begin to influence these wise men under his charge and share with them that, listen, the answers that you're looking for are not found in the stars themselves, but they are found in the one who hung the stars in the heavens. You see, there is a God, you people worship many gods, but there's only one God. There's the true and living God, He's the God of Israel, He's the God that you're seeking, and He's the God that has all the answers to life, and He's revealed Himself to us, through his prophets in the Scriptures, and Daniel would begin to share with them Scriptures about God Himself, and then also Scripture about this King who was coming into the world. A King who had been promised by God who would be greater than any other King to ever come upon this earth. A King who would rule over a kingdom of which there would be no end. And Daniel even showed them scriptures and shared with them scriptures that talked about this king, especially how they would know when this king had finally come. There's a prophet who had spoken about this and said that there is coming a king, he's not here yet, but he's coming, and when he comes, the sign of his coming will be a star in the heavens. Well, that certainly captured their curiosity, it piqued their interest. And they begin to study these things. And even though, even though those wise men that were under Daniel's authority had long since passed by the time of the birth of Christ, you have to believe that these things had been passed down in that culture among the wise men so that they had lived in anticipation of this coming king into the world. Centuries had passed, and yet they're still looking into the heavens waiting for a star to appear that will let them know that this king has finally arrived. And then one night it happens. One night, these men look up into the heavens, and there is this brilliant light. The Bible describes it as a star. I believe it was far more than just any ordinary star. It was a star that stood out, a brilliant light that captured their attention. It was unlike anything that they had ever seen before. In fact, I believe, along with many others, that perhaps this may have been the Shekinah glory of God, God Himself revealing Himself in the heavens to these wise men, because the star began to move, this light began to move from the east and began to take them on this journey, 600 miles into Judea, where they find themselves eventually in Jerusalem, standing before Herod the king. They begin to inquire of Herod, where is this king that has come into the world? We have seen his star and we have followed it to this point. Where is he? And Herod doesn't have a clue what they're talking about. But he turns to the chief priest and the scribes of that day. He begins to inquire of them, ask them, what are these men talking about? Where is, this, where is this star? Where is this king who is coming into the world? And they begin to share, yes, there is a king who is coming. The prophets have spoken about him. And what the prophets have said is that when the king arrives, he will come out of Bethlehem. Herod goes back to the wise men and said, it's in Bethlehem that this king is supposed to be born And so with that, the wise men leave, and suddenly the star, this light, appears to them again, and it takes them not just to Bethlehem, it takes them to the very place where the child is now staying with his mother. It's a house. And so this is probably at least weeks, months now have passed since the birth of Christ before these wise men finally show up in Bethlehem. And they've taken the child now into a house, and when the wise men get there, they walk into that house with all of this expectation and anticipation of what they are about to find. I mean, think about this. I mean, all the way on this journey, these men have been telling themselves, we're about to see a king who is greater than any other king who has come upon this earth. We are about to behold the king of all kings himself in the flesh. And they walk in this house, and what do they find? They find this child who is cradled in the arms, not of a princess, but of a peasant girl. The Bible tells us that Mary and Joseph were so poor that after Christ was born, when they went to the temple to offer up a sacrifice, that they couldn't even afford a lamb to purchase, to offer as a sacrifice, that they had to offer up two turtle doves, which would have been the sacrifice for the very poor. They had nothing, and it was obvious. And then they look at the child, and the child is not wrapped in purple. He's not wrapped in garments of royalty. Instead, he's draped in the cloth of a common man. And there's no crowd that is gathered there to welcome this king. There's nobody there but family. No long line of nobles standing outside the door waiting to get in to greet and welcome this king. There's no military entourage. There's no military guard surrounding the house or the child protecting this king. All they find is this peasant girl and this child who looks like any ordinary child to the human eye. And yet the Bible says that when they looked upon him, they fell down at his feet and they began to worship him. There's no indication that they looked to to one another and said, what kind of king is this? Instead, they bowed down before him and they worshiped him. And have you ever thought about that? Have you ever asked yourself the question, how is it that these men were able to see what much of the world that night was not able to see at all? How is it that this star appeared to them? And it seems like only to them. And they follow this star all the way to Bethlehem. How is it that they walk into this house and they see this ordinary child And rather than walking out in disappointment, thinking, who is this? Instead, they look at Him, and they behold Him, and they see Him as the promised one, the King of glory, the King of all kings, who has come into the world. There's only one explanation for this, folks. There's only one explanation for why these men were able to see what others could not see, and that explanation is found in the grace of God. God Himself had opened their eyes to see the truth that others could not. And that's the way it is for all who come to know and believe the truth of Jesus Christ and His Gospel. No one ever comes to Christ apart from the sovereign grace of God at work in their life. It is God, by His grace, who opens our eyes to see in Christ what others cannot see and what others do not see. Have you ever thought about that? If you're a Christian this morning, have have you ever thought about why it is? That most of the world looks at Christ and sees Him only as just a good man? And yet we look upon Him today and see Him as God who became man? Have you ever wondered why most of the world looks at Him today and sees Him as only one of the prophets and yet we look upon Him and we see Him as the fulfillment of all prophecy? Have you ever wondered why many in the world today look at him as just a man who came to inspire us by his teachings and by his example, and yet we look upon him and see him as the one who came into this world to save us and deliver us from our sins by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead? Why is it that most of the world today looks at him and sees him just as a man who lived long ago, and yet we see him as the one who conquered death and lives Forevermore. The world today looks at Him and sees Him as someone who can be dismissed and ignored. But we see Him as the one before whom every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess that He is Lord. Why is it that we see Him so differently? The answer is the grace of God in our life. John explains this in the opening chapter of his Gospel. Here's what John said about Christ coming into the world. He says, he was in the world. The Son of God came into the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. Have you ever thought about that? The one who created the world itself. The one who hung the stars in the heavens. The one who created the galaxies and the planets. The one who created us. Stepped into this world to live and dwell among us. And yet the world didn't recognize Him, didn't know Him. He came to His own, to His very own people, the people of Israel. Who had the promises of God and who knew that a Messiah was coming. He came to His very own and yet His own did not even receive Him. But John says this, But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe In His name who were born and he's talking not about being born physically He's talking about being born again here those who were born those who have been saved those who've been brought to the knowledge Of the truth concerning Jesus Christ and the gospel. These are people who have been born not of blood in other words This didn't come to them by history or heritage It wasn't just something passed down the family line It did not come to them by the will of the flesh. It's not something that they worked up themselves. It's not something that they discovered on their own, nor did it come to them, John says, by the will of men. In other words, it's not something that others could do for them or impose upon them. You know how John says this happens? How a person becomes born again, how a person becomes a child of God, he says it happens by God. God does this, and that's John's way of saying that our coming to the knowledge of the truth concerning Jesus Christ, which leads to salvation, is completely and totally the work of God. He's the one that must open our eyes to the truth. He's the one who must bring us to Christ. He's the one who must cause our hearts to respond in faith to the truth of Christ. He's the one who must make us, who are dead in our sins, to come alive again and be born again in Christ. Yes, it's true that we have a responsibility to respond to the drawing of the Holy Spirit in our life, but without the grace of God, we would have nothing to respond to. The bottom line is this, our salvation is not the result of something that we do or anything that we have done. It is completely and totally the work of God and the result of what He has done for us through Jesus Christ. And listen to me, when you come to realize that and understand that, that truth cannot help but fill your heart with wonder and move your heart to do what these wise men did when they found themselves before the Christ and that is to fall at His feet and worship Him. I said to you last week that if you're saved, just look back on your journey. And marvel at the grace of God in your life, of how you came to faith in Christ. And yes, there's a lot of things that you may have had going for you, being born into a a Christian home, being raised in church. But let me tell you something, don't presume upon that, because I know a lot of people born into Christian families who've been raised up in church, who are still as lost as they can be this morning who've never come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ, why is it that you were able to see what others do not see? Why is it that your heart came alive when you heard the gospel and you believed on Jesus Christ for your salvation? It is nothing but the grace of God in your life. To God be the glory. And you and I should marvel at that and never lose the wonder of what God has done in our life to bring us to Jesus. These men came to Him and they worshiped Him. And then how did they worship Him? The Bible says that they came presenting Him with gifts. They offered Him gifts. They laid gifts at His feet. And understand this. That when Matthew says that they fell down and they worshiped him and then they presented him gifts, he's not saying that after they worshiped, they presented him gifts. The gifts were a part of their worship. It was an expression of their worship. It's a continuation of their worship. These gifts they presented to Christ were offerings of worship to the king. And what did they give him? They gave him gold. Gold, the one metal that does not tarnish, the symbol universally of wealth and value. Gold was the gift of kings. The Bible says that when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, she brought to Solomon, among other gifts, very much gold. Because she knew that to gain entry with the king... One may offer only a gift that is worthy of a king and gold would be that gift. These men were Parthians. It was said in the Parthian culture that one could never gain audience with a king without bringing to him gold. And so they knew they were coming to see a king, a king greater than any other. They brought him gold. They didn't just bring gold. They also brought frankincense, a costly, beautiful smelling spice or incense that was used for the most special of occasions in the Old Testament Frankincense was stored in a special chamber in front of the temple and was often sprinkled on certain offerings as a symbol of the people's desire to be found acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. One of the early church fathers said about frankincense that it is the incense of deity. And then they brought to him myrrh. Myrrh was a perfume, not quite as expensive as frankincense, but it was still valuable. And myrrh mixed with other spices was often used in the preparation of bodies for burial. And so you look at this and you see that each of these gifts, when presented to Christ, represented an understanding somehow of who it was they had come to worship. This too can only be explained by the grace of God. But they offered to Him gold, to the King who is above all kings. They offer Him frankincense, because this is no ordinary man or child. This is God Himself who has come to live and dwell among us and He's wrapped Himself in flesh and has entered into our world. They offered Him myrrh because He had come into this world not just to live, but specifically to die. To die for us. To die for our sins. And that He would do and they would bury Him but then He would rise again from the dead. Proving that everything the Scripture says about Him is absolutely true. The thing that we see when we look at these gifts is that these wise men would have never even thought about coming before a king especially this king and not presenting him with gifts in humble recognition of who he is and so I ask you a question this morning what about us what about you What have you brought today to offer to the King who is greater than all kings? Many of us have spent the last few weeks, some of us the last couple of days, running around frantically, trying to find something that we may purchase, that we might bring and give to someone who is special to us and that we love to show them their value in our life, how much they mean to us. Some of you haven't lost much sleep over that, but some have worried yourself sick about making sure that you had had done enough and had offered up a gift worthy of the person who would receive it so that they would know just how much they mean to you. But, What about us in response to this king who we celebrate today, this king who has come into the world? What what have you given to him? What are you offering to him as an expression of your love and gratitude for what he has done for you? The psalmist said in Psalm 116 in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? That's a great question. What, What could you possibly give a king like this? What could we offer to Him that would be an offering worthy of who He is and all that He has done for us? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. And these are not my own. These come from Scripture. This is what the Scriptures say that we should offer up to our King. And this is not all that the Scripture says that we should offer Him, but at least it gives us a start. You know what the Bible says? That we should offer up to our God and to our King our praise. We should offer up to Him our praise. That sounds simple enough, but it's exactly what the Scriptures tell us. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, it says, therefore, by Him, by Christ, let us continue to offer sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Let us, through Christ, offer up to God The sacrifice of our praise, the fruit of our lips. Now, when we talk about praising God, many of us will probably sit here this morning and say, you know, pastor, I do that, but I do that internally. I do that in my heart. I praise God in my heart. I'm just not an expressive person, and so I just like to keep things inside, but in my heart, I'm praising God. Well, let me tell you, that's not what the scriptures say that we're to do. The Scripture says that the praise that belongs to our God is something that is to be let out. It is something that is to be expressed. It doesn't say, give him the fruit of our hearts. It says, give him the fruit of our lips, our praise. So what is in our heart should be expressed outwardly and openly. You read the Psalms. The Psalms talk about singing our praises to God. Giving him praise through song. The Psalms even talk about shouting our praises to God. The Psalms talk about us speaking of God's praise and declaring His praise to others. In fact, even to all of the nations of the world, declaring the praises of our God. What the Scripture tells us is that we, as people who know the King, who personally know the King, who are in relationship with the King, who've experienced all of the benefits and the blessings of the King, are to declare His praises outwardly and openly to all around us that they may hear and they may know about this king and what this king has done for us yes we're to do that through song but we're also to do that through sharing our stories of God's grace in our life with others in the world who have yet to come to know and experience the wonders and the glories of this King. You know, one of the greatest things I believe that you can do as an offering of worship to God and to Christ our King is to constantly be talking about Him and sharing Him, the good news of His coming into the world and what He has done for you to be sharing that with others to tell others the story of your journey to the cross, of your journey to Christ, and how God, by His grace, has led you to the place where you have discovered that in Jesus Christ you have found the meaning of life, the King who is above all kings, who is alone, worthy of our worship and our praise. We are to offer up to God our praise. Not just on Sunday but every day. Scripture also says that we are to offer up to God our life. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. He's he's saying, "I, I I am beseeching you. I am imploring you on the basis of what God has done for you in Christ. By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your bodies. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. A spiritual act of worship is what that means. Present to God your body. When when Paul talks about presenting to God our body, he's talking about presenting to God the sum total of who we are. Our entire being. Our whole life is to be offered up to God as an offering of worship to Him. As a living sacrifice. In response to the mercy and the grace that He has shown to us. You see, there, 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 there are, are, are some people who think that, that Jesus Christ just wants the, the rest of our life, after we've, after we've given ourselves to other things, just as long as we can fit Him in somewhere. Just as long as we can make Him sort of a part of our life, that that's enough, and that's what He wants. But that's not what the Scripture says. Jesus doesn't want to be the rest of your life. He wants to be the best of your life. He deserves to be the best of your life. Everything that I am, everything that I have should be first and foremost given to Him. My service, my obedience, my life, offered up to Christ as a living sacrifice in response to the grace of God that I have received in Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's so much that we could say about that. But I think it's summarized perhaps best in the words of a hymn that just happened to be probably some of the the favorite lyric that has ever been written by any writer, of any hymn that I have ever sung growing up in church. I like all genres of music. doesn't bother me so much of what we sing when we come to church, as long as it's exalting Jesus, as long as it's about Christ and glorifying Him. I, I like some of the new stuff, but I'll tell you, I still hang my hat on a lot of the old stuff, because that's what I grew up with, it's what I've known. Some of that stuff has just kind of stuck with me, even after all of these years. And there's a song that I grew up singing in church as a boy that just has lingered with me. And the older I get, the more it means to me. It was written by a man by the name of Isaac Watts. Interestingly enough, Isaac Watts was, he was alive during the 1700s. So this hymn has been around for a long, long, long time. And one of, the, one of the arguments when the new music started coming out in the church, what, one of the arguments uh, about uh, bringing the new music into the church is that people used to say, well, you know, the hymns, well, the, the men who wrote the hymns, they were writing about God, and the new music is more songs to God. But that's not the case always. When Isaac Watts wrote this hymn a long time ago, it was very personal to him. It's a hymn that he wrote to, to express to God the gratitude for all that God had done for him in Christ. And the name of the hymn is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Now I want you to listen to the lyric of this song. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross, he's, he's speaking of himself, when I look at the cross and what God has done on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all of my pride. Forbid it, Lord, second stanza, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Third stanza, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Talking about the blood of Jesus. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then he gets to the last stanza, and here's what he says. Listen to this. Were the whole realm of nature mine? That would be a present far too small. For love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen and amen. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. And if you understand who Jesus Christ is and you understand what God did for you on the cross by the mercies of God, I beseech you, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God every day, holy and acceptable, giving God the best of who you are every day in response to all that He has done for you because only that gift would be worthy of a king such as ours. Do you know Jesus Christ today as your Savior and Lord? Have you put your trust in Him for the forgiveness of sin? I want you to know this morning, in case you are confused at all, that if you are here today and you're lost, And you're wondering, where is the grace of God in my life? I'll tell you where it is. It's in the fact that you're sitting right here today on Christmas Eve to hear from this preacher that God so loved you enough that he gave his only begotten son, that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came to save sinners, of which I, by the way, am the worst. He lived the life that you and I could not live. He went to the cross and died the death that we all deserve. And then God raised him up from the dead so that through him we could have the forgiveness of sin, be reconciled to God, and have the hope and the promise of eternal life. And I know some of you have grown up in church and you've heard that your entire life, but don't you ever lose the wonder and the awe of that, that God loved you enough that he sacrificed his only son in order to save your wretched soul so that you would not perish, but that you could have everlasting life. And if you're wondering where the grace of God is, it's in that you've lived long enough to hear this preacher tell you that and that you're sitting here today with an opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life. And if you've never trusted Christ, I pray that today you will do just that. And for those of us who are saved, it's Christmas time. And may we not lose the wonder and the awe of Jesus Christ coming into the world to save us. And may we not lose the wonder and the awe of God's grace in our life that has brought us to the knowledge of that truth, where we would believe on Jesus Christ as our Savior and receive in Him the gift of everlasting life. We didn't just stumble on that, folks. God, by His grace, has opened our eyes to that, and He has rescued us from our sin. And so praise be to God this morning for what He has done for us in Christ. Let's pray. If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fbcmartin.org.